Welcome to Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. I'm Rob Lott. And I'm Chris Fleming. The holidays are here. We're recording a special episode today, and we'll get to the details in a minute. But we're mixing things up. I'm here with you guys. So tell me, you know, how's it going? How do you guys feel heading into the last stretch of 2020? Oh, it's crazy. 2020, uh, no one could have predicted um, where we'd be today um, a few months ago. Um, And so I guess I have mixed feelings. You know, it's still a kind of pretty dark time, um, both literally um, uh, at the the beginning of winter and and figuratively um, with everything that's going on out there, but feeling hopeful and looking forward to 21. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I've sort of uh, hit a little bit of a personal milestone in that uh, my daughter this year is having her somewhat weird, uh, as everybody's is, uh, senior year of high school and uh, has just uh, started hearing back from colleges and has gotten into uh, uh, three now. And uh, so the happy... Congratulations. Thank you. And my happy news is my daughter's going to college and then it hits me and the bad news is my daughter's going to college. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's a new new phase and very happy for her. How about you, Leslie? Yeah, so I've been reflecting a lot on a year, you know, like Rob said, that turned out to be unlike, you know, anything I think any of us could have imagined. And it's it's really given me some perspective. And I think, um, you know, like a lot of us, I'm just, I'm really thankful for the small things. And I, I said that to somebody the other day and I realized like, oh, wow, that sounds really kind of lofty when you put it that way. But small things like I'm in my 30s. I just learned how to use the automatic brew function on my coffee machine. I just got a library card for the first time in my adult life. So I, I'm all about it. Good coffee, good books. That's how I've made my way through 2020. But Um, You know, as much as I'm looking forward to kind of like this new year, new beginnings, I think the pandemic has really um, just sort of taught us to be kinder to ourselves. And I I really want to intentionally carry that, you know, mindset into 2021. Um, But what a year, right? I think think most people would say that COVID-19 has been the defining issue of 2020, and it's been hard to look away. And while all of our attention has been on the pandemic, there have been plenty of things happening in healthcare and in health policy that you might have missed or maybe that didn't get the attention they should have this year. And so for this episode, we asked the editors at Health Affairs what they thought were some of the biggest developments and stories in health policy this year that had to compete with COVID-19. And today on the show, uh, we'll tell you what they said and, and why these stories matter. So uh, from the top, Chris, I'm going to go back to March 2020 because we all sort of inconspicuously marked the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. And like many things this year, the celebration looked uh, very different. But I think it's worth appreciating just uh, what has been made possible through um, this huge piece of health reform legislation. We know millions more people have coverage. Uh, insurers can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. There are new payment models. Medicaid expansion provides coverage for people with substance use disorders. I'm literally going through the table of contents 
in our March issue of Health Affairs, uh, which was dedicated to the ACA 10, um, but we had some challenges around the release, Chris, uh, given that it coincided with the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, we did indeed. Actually, uh, you know, we had to uh, actually cancel the, we had a big release event planned and we had to cancel it. It was before uh, people figured out how to do uh, all sorts of things virtually as we do now. Uh, it's, it's ironic, actually, that the event did not uh, survive because the ACA itself has been, I think, marked by and distinguished by survival. Uh, the law really survived uh, Republican attempts to repeal and replace it, uh, even after President Trump won in 2016 and with Republicans controlling both houses of Congress. You know, people were writing the law's obituary. Uh, the law survived the death of a thousand cuts during the Trump administration. Uh, that included, just to give one example, uh, regulations that did things like expand uh, uh, access to non-ACA compliant plans, uh, notably short-term limited duration plans. And that's not all though, right, Chris? The administration shortened the open enrollment period, right? And made drastic cuts to the marketing budget and outreach for marketplaces. Um, they really gave it their best shot, huh? Yep, it, uh, they did indeed. And uh, uh, then, of course, the ACA survived the uh, zeroing out of the individual mandate penalty by Congress. Uh, and then, uh, barring any huge surprises after the oral arguments in Texas v. California in front of the Supreme Court, uh, it looks like the ACA will survive its latest brush with judicial death. I mean, there'll be, uh, as there always has been, lots of uh, litigation over various parts of the law. But uh, those cases shouldn't uh, present the same sort of existential threat as uh, the Texas case did and a couple of other cases before it. So the ACA is surviving, Chris, like you said, but how's it doing? Well, you know, actually, you, I said it was surviving, and I think it's more than that. I think particularly given the circumstances, uh, you might even say it's thriving. I mean, the uh, popularity of the law went up when it really became under threat. Uh, the uh, enrollment on the marketplaces, uh, in addition, there's also the Medicaid expansion, but the marketplace enrollment stayed uh, remarkably steady. And now, in fact, we've just heard after the close of open enrollment for 2021 that for the first time, uh, enrollment under the Trump administration, enrollment in healthcare.gov, which is the federally facilitated marketplace, uh, actually went up once you uh, take into account the fact that a couple states, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, transitioned from uh, using healthcare.gov last year uh, to using their own state-based marketplaces uh, for 2021. So I think it's also important to recognize the role that the ACA had, maybe underappreciated role, in the COVID response, right? Especially for um, people maybe who lost jobs or job-based coverage. Um, the ACA um, was was a part of the safety net for, uh, for a lot of people who had to sort of face the worst of this pandemic. Uh, yeah, it was indeed. I mean, as you know, obviously many, uh, unfortunately, many millions of Americans lost their jobs and job-based coverage, as you point out, and uh, having a safety net uh, prevented the specter of people perhaps uh, without coverage uh, having a uh, a bad incentive to forego treatment or testing for COVID, which could have uh, increased the spread of the disease. Uh, then there, you know, of course, as Leslie mentioned, you have the 
mandate for coverage of pre-existing conditions, which prevented a lot of Americans who had COVID from becoming uninsurable, not being able to get coverage for after effects of the, of the disease. And you had other things like, you know, for instance, uh, Congress's provision uh, uh, mandate for uh, the coverage of uh, vaccines by private insurance plans was built uh, on the structure of the ACA's preventive services coverage mandate. So the ACA, you're right, was was crucial in, in uh, mounting our uh, response, however flawed, uh, to COVID-19. And what do you think happens now? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Joe Biden, uh, who's, of course, the president-elect, uh, campaigned against the left's version of repeal and replace. Uh, people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren were pushing to repeal the ACA and replace it with a Medicare for all single payer approach. And instead, Biden campaigned really not just on maintaining, but building on the ACA, right? Yep, that's right, Rob. I mean, some of his proposals, uh, such as adding a public option, uh, increasing the amount of subsidies, the income range where people can get those subsidies, uh, those would require uh, legislation on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, that could be a heavy lift uh, if Republicans maintain control of the Senate, and even if they don't. Right, because these days, I think pretty much everything outside the budget reconciliation process needs 60 votes in the Senate. Yep. Uh, though, it's also worth noting that the Biden administration will be able to do a significant amount on their own. You know, to cite a few examples, they can initiate rulemaking and roll back many of the Trump administration changes. They could reimpose, for instance, uh, tougher restrictions on short-term plans. They could issue uh, regulatory guidance on topics like Section 1332 waivers. Yeah, so it'll be good to kind of keep our eyes on on what happens. And I think more than anything, the events of this past year mean that there are just many more things to study and, and to learn from. And you can always find continuing coverage about the ACA and other late-breaking issues on the Health Affairs blog. I want to stick kind of with uh, the business of healthcare and, and go to you, Rob, for another story our editors said was really key this year. Yeah, one of uh, one of the issues that came up repeatedly was the sort of role of antitrust enforcement um, in uh, the healthcare sector, and uh, I think it's worth noting up front that you know mergers and acquisitions, federal enforcement uh, on this front move on a much slower timeline uh, than something like a, a world viral outbreak, um, and I think that's a good thing because. Um, meant that there were cases and proposals working their way through the system before the pandemic struck. There are new cases that are just kind of starting off that we'll have uh, plenty of time to work through and won't be resolved uh, for some time, hopefully after the, the worst is over. Um, and so in some way, this is the, the kind of traffic around antitrust has kind of been chugging along um, despite the pandemic. Um, and one thing we did see when the pandemic struck was the FD, FDC came out and said it was not going to dial back its enforcement actions during COVID-19. And they essentially said, you know, we're going to be watching you. No funny stuff. That sounds really ominous. <laughs> uh, what were they watching out for? Well, in particular, they didn't want to see large entities taking advantage of smaller, perhaps more vulnerable 
um, organizations uh, taking advantage of them to consolidate their their position. We're talking about rural and underserved hospitals and systems that might be in a weak state during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I can remember when the pandemic first started and you know people were avoiding uh, going to, to, to get treatment, that people were saying, you know, this could be the end of the healthcare sector as we know it. Yeah, and I guess the jury's still out on that. Things are, you know, really turned upside down and systems, I think, are still trying to figure out, you know, the way forward. But And, you know, in terms of antitrust, I think some of the cases that went through that uh, th- there were... Uh, there were some cases that went through that critics didn't really love, and uh, there are some cases that the FTC did push back on, um, and so it was a bit of a mixed bag. Well, so well, well, a lot of other things then uh, spiraled out of control during the pandemic. It sounds like that the agencies tried to stand their ground on some uh, some pretty serious potential consolidation. Yeah, I think at the very least they shined a light on the fact that there are a lot of smaller organizations. Um, even before the pandemic that were vulnerable to consolidation. And now uh, they may be, you know, teetering on the edge of viability. And it's uh, at least sort of shown a light and, and begun to build some consensus that unless we invest in supporting those, those vulnerable organizations, um, perhaps even with some of the recovery funds, um, that they could be gobbled up and that could lead to less competition and higher prices. So what do we need to be looking for in the year ahead uh, when it comes to antitrust issues in healthcare? Yeah, a few things. One, I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, the potential influence of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and the administration's new uh, nominee for HHS Secretary, Javier Becerra. Um, as you know, before she was elected Senator, Harris was the Attorney General of California. And when Harris became Senator, Becerra replaced her uh, as the AG in the state. And they both took a pretty strong stance on antitrust issues. Yeah, yeah. For, for example, there was this huge settlement that they won against uh, Sutter Health for any uh, competitive practices in California. It was kind of a landmark case in this space, a sort of line in the sand uh, for other systems that, that may have been trying um, similar tactics. And it was something of a tag team effort. Harris kind of laid the foundation and then Becerra sealed the deal when he took office. Um, but I also want to mention two other things quickly on this front, and, and one to keep a lookout for is mergers that are more complex than the sort of traditional horizontal integration where uh, two parallel systems kind of uh, kind of come together. And I'm talking about complicated unions like the CVS Aetna merger or kind of under the radar uh, efforts where hospitals acquire physician practices one at a time until their position uh, in the market is really tremendous, and then it's hard to unwind. Right, and I think these are you know trends that after the ACA really surged, right? Because uh, you know life can never be simple. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that that's exactly right. And they continue to express themselves in new ways. I think about the famous illustration from the 1900s of the standard oil monopoly as an octopus. And it feels that way today. I think there are so many tentacles reaching in so many different directions and it's hard to keep track of them and hard to keep them in check. 
Ah, so many tentacles. It sounds like a good description of 2020. Yeah, I'd be remiss also if I didn't mention the big Facebook and Google cases. It's not health uh, care directly, uh, but it is a huge deal. And they represent completely new territory for everyone in this space. And and how these cases play out, I think, are going to be a signal uh, for how strong this administration um, and the states are going to be acting on antitrust these days. Uh, and it's certainly going to influence how the health sector goes forward in its own fraught competitive landscape. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But I want to move on to the last topic that we're that we're going to cover today. And it's one that I do think has been sort of marginalized in the wake of the pandemic. And that is environmental rollbacks. And this story about how the outgoing Trump administration has been sort of quietly maneuvering to expedite and strip down environmental protections. They've targeted infrastructure and energy projects, especially, right, saying that they want to accelerate these types of projects in order to boost the economy. Exactly. And the president issued several executive orders to try to speed up and circumvent environmental reviews, allowing um, what they said, what they called infrastructure investments and other activities to bypass parts of this law known as the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, Again, the stated purpose was to really facilitate um, America's economic recovery. And this is a law that allows, that requires, I should say, the government to think about how building a highway, for example, affects the environment and local communities. Yeah. And, you know, when you start to scale that kind of those kind of requirements back, it sounds like that's got to have some long-term implications. And, you know, as we know, uh, the American policy apparatus doesn't always do long-term very well. But I think for me, these rollbacks have really led to um, breaks in the decision-making process, and it's it's made it a lot less transparent. And because of COVID-19, you know, it's harder for people to physically, people who are directly impacted by these projects to participate in that process. And it leaves some communities a lot more vulnerable. It leaves them without a voice in terms of um, saying how these projects could affect their health and well-being, um, often in places where you already have a long history of environmental degradation. And so the implications from a health equity standpoint, I think, are really pretty significant. And with that, um, I want to invite you to tune in next week. We have part two. There's another fun year-end episode coming out with Jess and Babe, uh, where we will pick up where we left off and get into more health policy stories that you might have missed in 2020. Um, So until next week, Rob, Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thanks guys. (laughs) We wish everyone a healthy and happy holiday season. If you need a last-minute gift, share this episode with a friend, and don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.